Well, we're coming into the patriotic season. I call it the patriotic season because of all the holidays. We've got Memorial Day, end of this month, right? Uh, then there's Flag Day, middle of June. Then there's Independence Day, 4th of July. And then there's Veterans Day, a little bit later in the fall. But it's kind of like they're all packed together. So I'm feeling in a patriotic mood. I'm feeling like this is probably a good time to talk about things like government. An exciting topic that everybody agrees on everything all the time about, right? <laughs> I uh, am also been kind of, um, well, just observing uh, that the presidential campaign is already starting and, uh, for 2020. And I think as of today, there's about 483 people running this year. <laughs> Something like that, and uh, I, I really, I personally enjoy following that stuff, and I've, I've shared that with you before, but I, I recognize it's not everybody's gig. But what I, what I wanted to do, I, I've been chewing on this for a couple of months, actually. I, I wanted to find out, what does God think about government? Is it really just a necessary evil, or is it something that Christians are supposed to be absolutely concerned and engaged about? You know, when you hear about the next person that just threw their hat in the ring, you know, you might roll your eyes and just go, oh, brother, I'm just so out of here. I really don't care anymore. I'm just done, done with this. And uh, if you're not rolling your eyes and disengaging, maybe you're um, wanting to get involved, but maybe a little bit misguided because you haven't really taken the time to find out what does God think? What does God want? How much influence should, should government have on my daily life? And should I really care? How much influence should I have in directing those who lead us politically? Um, is that really my responsibility? Does that come with the package called the gospel? Is that really a Christian's responsibility? I uh, shared with you a few weeks ago, it was Easter Sunday, that uh, the reason Jesus came was to bring shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, which actually is an expansive definition. It means peace, contentment, wholeness, prosperity, uh, joy, fulfillment, everything that a human could want. Jesus called it abundant life. So he came to bring shalom, but the, the thing that we always have to remember is that the reason I became a Christian was not just so I could always be about me, 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 me. Jesus didn't just come to bless you, 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 and that's it, or us, us, us. He came so that we could be a blessing to everybody that we come into contact with. Which reminds me, one way we can be a blessing is uh, to pray for one another. Um, Bakhtiar's oldest daughter, her name is Alex, uh, just got married last year, and uh, she is currently in the hospital right now in the process of giving birth to her firstborn. So is your wife there with her? Irina is there as well? Yeah. So um, he asked if we could just pray for a successful birth. Can we do that for Alex? And her husband's name again is? Oh, Leaf. That's right. Reese. Oh, like the... Reese. With a V. With a V. Okay. Only three times. Reeve. So sorry. Father, thank you so much, God, that you're the author of life, and um, we get to participate in praying for shalom over Reeve and Alex and their brand new child, Lord. We just pray that you give them favor, blessing, a sense of peace, Father, both for mom and dad and siblings, but especially for Alex and Reeve. And Lord, we pray for a strong, healthy child, and uh, that you would raise this one to glorify you all the days of their life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Amen. So shalom wasn't just brought by Christ for our personal benefit. You know, if, if that were the case, then I would just be thankful, man, I'm going to heaven, my sins are forgiven, I have the Holy Spirit, I get wisdom day to day for my life's challenges, I can be successful, I can prosper, I can really enjoy the fruitful life. The problem with that narrow point of view, however, is that it's really self-centered. It's really still about me. I mean, the source of my happiness may have shifted from King me to King Jesus, but the focus is still me. I'm just the receiver, recipient of all the goodness of God. It's great that you're recognizing you can't provide your own well-being anymore, and God is your resource in, in every area of life. But self-centeredness was not the point. It was for you to be full enough to give life away. Amen? So the question is, um, does our political system deserve any of that abundance that we've been given? Are we required to serve our political system or those in oversight over us to share in the abundance that we've been given? Yes or no? I wanted to find out what does God say about that. If I'm supposed to be governed by Jesus, then it's not just a matter of being taken care of by him which is a lot of what our focus is on. I mean, we sing a lot of songs about his care for me, oh, how he loves us, and wisdom, and forgiveness, and passion, and compassion, and all that. Um, but the scripture is full of places where God speaks clearly about his government working through humans on earth all the time. In fact, it starts right in the very beginning, Genesis 1. Um, he told Adam and Eve, you are called to rule over creation. Ruler sounds like government language to me. How about you? Yeah. Um, then he goes on in Exodus, he called Moses to lead and direct and prophetically voice the opinion of God to a people. That sounds like governance to me. Then Leviticus, he raised up priests to rule over the people. And then in Joshua, when Moses passed away, he, he called a military leader. That sounds pretty governmental to me. And then after Joshua, Gideon was raised up for a whole new season of the way God would guide his people. He would use judges now. And then after the season of Gideon and judges came to a close, then it became a new season, the season of kings, when Saul was quoted, voted in as the new and first king of Israel. Sounds like rulership to me. Sounds like governance to me. Now, when Jesus came, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's not just sitting around on a couch, you know, taking an opinion poll on what the disciples want to do. No, he's declaring himself to be the boss of everyone. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And then before he passed away, he passed it on to his believers. So just that whole word of authority. It sounds like Government was not some result of the fall. It's not a default that we have to go to because we're broken humans. It seems like governing was in the heart of God from the very beginning. And so we have to be careful just because our particular media outlets and oh, the ridiculous language that goes back and forth on television, online, on the radio. It's just so maddening. It's just so sickening sometimes. It'd be easy to just detach and say, I can't get involved in this, but I don't see that in Scripture, that Christians are required to care for all the areas of people's lives except for government. I, I just don't find that there. And I want to show you a couple of examples this morning because I think government is indeed 
God's idea, and I think it's in our DNA to either be part of a team who cares for and governs others or to be willingly submitted to those over us to be governed. That's just kind of part of the way God seems to have designed humans. What if, I'm not sure where you're at on this, and I'm not going to, I promise I will do everything I can today not to turn anybody off about anything. I really do. I mean, I make that commitment. This is not, church is not for politics or persuading you to go one direction or another. Church is supposed to be finding out who is God, what's his will for my life, how do I respond, right? Yeah. That's it. And I just want to introduce the, the thought that we're not going to go back to the 80s where, you know, there's now a moral majority and Christians are going to take over America and we're going to rule, you know, we're not going to become a theocracy. But that's, that's an extreme that we, we can't just throw everything out the window. We have to come back and say, okay, do I have a role as a follower of Christ? And I, I personally am discovering we do. We cannot just throw that out the window. There's a quote I'd like to show you. It's uh, from this young man. His name is uh, Clausen, David Clausen. He's a 20-something who's still in college, working on his PhD. And uh, he, he, I found this beautiful quote. Listen to this. He says, during the course of a presidential campaign, it is common to hear evangelicals, especially younger ones, quip, I'm just not that interested in politics, or politics just aren't my thing. These dismissive remarks are often delivered with a veneer of piousness, implying that political engagement is inherently defiled, occupying an arena unfit for those serious about the gospel. For those inundated with television ads, robocalls, campaign mail, and the overall negative tone of politics, this might be a tempting position to adopt. However, it is not a position Bible-believing, gospel-loving Christians can or should accept as congruent with Scripture. That's a pretty strong statement, especially coming from a 20-something, you know, who often are the ones who say, just, I'll leave that all to you guys. We're going to go do the rest of life. But then I began looking in the Word and finding places where God was really clear about our call to engage in the political arena at some level, and especially in countries where democracy and uh, the individual is given so much power and authority, unlike so many other countries where they have none. So I, I want to begin, uh, first of all, by looking at a passage in Jeremiah 29. And a little background on this, you probably remember the story. The Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, came into Israel, conquered the Israelites, and carried them away to live in exile in Babylon for about 70 years. And when they were brought there, the Jews who came had lived a history of isolationism. They had been not, not only commanded, but trained, even by God, to not have a whole lot to do with the surrounding cultures. And so they had kind of developed this mentality that, okay, if we're going to Babylon, we'll probably end up in a prison camp somewhere, maybe a place with walls, or maybe we'll just sort of uh, just kind of found our own outlying community, but we are not going to engage with those Babylonians. They are dirty people, and they're going to ruin us, and they're going to wreck us. And so with that in mind, look what God says to them. Through Jeremiah, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. 
Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Does that sound like isolationism? No, it sounds like engagement. It sounds like, um, what's that word? Assimilation. Now, clearly, the Israelites were not to assimilate into the religious practices of the Babylonians. They were not to take on the habits and lifestyles of the Babylonians. But as far as interaction, they were supposed to be part of the community. Part of the community. I mean, if you think about it, when God says, okay, you're an Israelite. You've just traveled for hundreds of miles. You land in this place where there's nothing there for you. And God says, okay, go ahead, settle down. Build houses, buy property, marry, and give your sons and daughters in marriage. And by the way, plant gardens so you can eat. Okay, so I have a question. When you plant a garden, when and how long does it take for your first crop to come in? A long time, a whole season at least. What are they supposed to do, starve for three months? No, they've got to eat. They're going to have to go to the market, the Babylonian market, talk to the Babylonian merchants and buy food from Babylonians with Babylonian money or whatever they use to trade. There's total interaction there. And so they were called to at least engage with the Babylonians around them and in fact pray for their prosperity. Because if the city that you live in prospers, so will you. Now, do you see any parallels between the church in America today and the Israelites in Babylon then? Do you feel like we're in exile in some ways? I mean, we are no longer a Bible-based, God-centered culture. We are a post-Christian culture. And so, though a lot of us are old enough to remember the days when, quote, everybody went to church and we were a Christian nation, that is quickly disappearing And so now the political scene is being influenced by people who have no basis in Scripture or in the nature of God. And so we are kind of in exile here. I'm sure some of you feel it. When you're at work and there's a a really liberal bias around uh, in the people around you, it's kind of tough to speak up and go, I'm not really going that direction. I'm going this way. Because there's persecution, you get made fun of. The culture has really changed to become if not anti-Christian, at least definitely uh, multicultural, where everything should be accepted equally. So I feel like, as a Christian today, yeah, I live in a a culture that isn't really on my team, not really on my side. And yet, I am not allowed to just escape and disappear or hide. I find it fascinating. Look at this phrase. We know that Nebuchadnezzar and his armies are the ones who physically carried the Jews away. I mean, literally, they were driven. But how does God phrase it? He says, to the place where I have carried you. It was like his intent. He was working at something larger than just the immediate imprisonment of his people. He's working at something built deep into their character. It was God's intent. So can I say to you and I, you've been carried into America in its current state In the culture that's so challenging and difficult, in many ways anti-Christian, that this is God's intent for you? Sure, it's easy to just get crazy because the Facebook is blowing up and you just can't get sick of it. You just go, ah, no. But I don't see that giving us the privilege to escape or disappear. 
I think you and I have been carried by the hand of God to live at such a time as this for this particular time. We'll talk about how to apply that because it's going to vary depending on what our personal call is. But before we get there, let's just ask the question. Um, do you think the new law in New York State that's just been passed that allows abortion all the way up until the day of birth is God's will? Yeah. The, the law says... In fact, the sponsor of the bill said, uh, was asked a question, if a woman begins feeling and experiencing the physical signs of delivering a child, you know, contractions and things that are just like, okay, it's time, is it still legal to abort that baby? And she said, yes. Based on what you know about Scripture and about the nature of God, do you think God can put blessing and prosperity on that state? No. No, it's going to be hard. I mean, I, I, I can't measure God's grace versus his wrath. And I'm not going to pretend to, but you've got to believe it as a Christian, knowing that if I integrate myself into the lives of my friends and neighbors who don't know the Lord and begin having influence on their opinions and, and take my responsibility to vote for candidates that uphold scriptural principles, there's a much better chance that the state of New York is going to have the prosperity and blessing of God. I get to have a say in that. That's like, not just a privilege, that's a responsibility. On the other hand, down in Alabama, they just passed a brand new law that says, no abortions are ever legal at any time unless the mother's life is in danger. Now that's been taken to court, it's not been enacted yet, but it has been passed, the governor signed the bill. Do you think just generally speaking, the favor of God will be upon the people of Alabama more than if they'd gone the other direction? That's what the scripture says. So I think I have to recognize I have a part to play in that for my community, for my state. There's a really strong push right now to have safe injection sites in downtown Seattle. How many of you have heard of that, safe injection sites? Yeah, it's, it's uh, this uh, amazing idea where uh, because there have been so many overdoses from heroin and fentanyl and opioids of all kinds, um, some people think it would be better to not let people die who are addicted to drugs, but get them to come into our little safe injection site, which would be kind of like a mobile nursing station, and let them inject under the care and watchful eye of a nurse or a doctor so that they don't overdose. And if they do, we can kind of inject them with that counteracting drug, whatever it is, and they don't die. But they get to keep injecting as long as they want. We're not going to control that or arrest them or anything else. Do you think if that comes to a vote for you and I that... If we agree with that, that God's favor is going to increase on the Seattle area? I don't, no. So we want to be people who recognize we've been sent here by God and have responsibility to care for those around us and to bring the blessing and the favor and the goodness of God versus standing by and going, oh well, not my gig, sorry to be you. There's another verse, let's move on. It says that the call to civic duty is a New Testament principle. That last one was Old Testament. It is a New Testament principle. Jesus was teaching, very familiar verse. You've heard this before, Matthew 22, 37 through 39. It says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to stop right there. And then when he finished that, one of the Pharisees asked him, so who is my neighbor? 
You know, they wanted to kind of like dial in, who do I have to take care of and who do I not have to take care of? And that's when he came up with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, you know the story. He, he said, you know, Samaritan came after the priest and the rabbi and the other Jewish leader, passed a man who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead. And it was a Samaritan who came and gave him great care, nursed him back to health, took him to a little hotel, paid his bills, made sure he was fed and had a chance to heal. Jesus said, if you want to know who your neighbor is, let me hold up someone that you think is subhuman, Samaritan. Let me hold up somebody you think doesn't deserve to live, Samaritan. Somebody you think is just born immoral and cursed for life, Samaritan. Samaritan is the example I'm holding up for you as to how to love your neighbor. So when, when Jesus goes to such extremes to say, Man, it's, it's the least of these around you that are not only to be loved, but to do the loving as well. So it's kind of like he's, he's just blowing up all of their expectations and all of their kind of their cultural norms and, and the way they saw the world and saying, no, man, uh, if you want to obey that commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't matter who they are or who you are. It's a universal commandment. That's what gets God's pleasure when I thought about that, I, I realized, um, you know, there are a lot of situations in my world, community, close by, a lot of situations in our country, far away, cross country, a lot of situations around the world that I just feel like there's no way I can touch that. No way I can ever get involved in that. There's nothing I can do. There's a, uh, a country across the Pacific that um, they call the two Koreas. The two Koreas. And you know about North Korea, probably. Uh, totalitarian dictatorship. Um, rules with an iron thumb. The people who live in North Korea are not allowed to escape. Most countries have fences to keep people out. North Korea has fences to keep people in. And they're so poorly treated any disagreement with the government will send them to a gulag or a prison camp or they'll be tortured or starved or frozen to death. And uh, everything they produce is for the good of the corrupt few at the top. It's a horrible, horrible, inhumane situation. Now we could, as Christians, take that Good Samaritan story and go, you know what, we should at least bring practical help. A lot of them are starving. Let's set up a food pantry for North Korea. Let's collect food. And let's, let me, maybe we can send some doctors undercover and do a little hospital work. And, and we can kind of do that good Samaritan thing, you know, heal his wounds and feed him, put him up in a hotel. But can I tell you, don't you think their political situation would do a thousand times more for them if they had an upstanding, generous, kind leader? That's a political issue. Sure, we should do some short-term stopgap things that we can every time and any time you can. But I'm telling you, if we could begin to pray that the leadership would somehow be overturned and that human rights would be valued as every person is made in the image of God and deserves to be cared for, deserves to be loved and have given the opportunity that their neighbors and in some cases their other family members get to have in South Korea. South Korea is a semi-democracy, a fairly free land where um, personal initiative is rewarded. They're prosperous. They're strong. They're generally happy and peaceful people. 
In fact, North Korea has the largest single Christian church in the world. Pastor Joe. I'm sorry, I'm going to say, thank you, South Korea. Yeah. The large, so they're, they're even open to Christianity. What would be the loving thing for us to do to ignore the people of the North because it's a political situation? We're not called to do politics. We're supposed to do food and bandages. Or do we do it all? We, I think we're called to do it all. So if that's the case there, then shouldn't that as well be the case here? 1 Peter 2.11, uh, he begins to describe himself and the believers that he's pastoring, and, and he says, we are sojourners and exiles in the land in which we live. And, and it's that idea that we're just passing through. We're strangers and we're aliens. This is not our home. We don't live here. You've heard that before, right? And praise God, that is true. It's not our permanent domain. Heaven is our, that's where we get to go. But it doesn't mean that while we're here, we get to just disappear. I don't see Scripture supporting that. There can be a temptation to adopt the idea that uh, earthly governments are inconsequential to the grand scheme of things. It's really about eternity. It's really about the spiritual life of everybody. It's not really political. But I, I bet if you ask a pastor who's leading an underground church in a communist nation, fearing for his life every time they met, would he say, politics don't matter? No. It's life and death for them. We're missionary. We had this with Anna Marie. She's our missionary in Germany. Um, she was being asked to leave the country because the government had just passed a new law that certain kinds of visas would no longer be accepted, and she was going to have to leave Germany. I'm telling you, that is very kingdom-centered. That's a very spiritual, political issue. Turns out, after about six months, they rescinded the new law, and she's been able to stay. So missionaries, pastors in underground churches, I think they would be very convinced that loving them as our neighbor, like we love ourselves, is very kingdom gospel oriented. And then finally, we are called and I, we are responsible, I think scripture says, to care for the country to which God has sent us or carried us. Paul says to Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that petitions prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God's ultimate goal absolutely is eternity, salvation, rescue from perishing, forgiveness of sin, eternity with, with his son Jesus. But he ties that spiritual goal that he has with the governments of this world. The reason we are to be praying for our leaders is because he wants everybody to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. They're intertwined. They're not separate. So if we're praying for somebody, oh, Lord, help our leaders fear you, come to a personal knowledge of Christ, and um, make godly, wise decisions. And then we're presented with an opportunity to actually help them do that? Wouldn't it make sense to say, hey, what I'm praying, I can actually help them do, like vote, for instance. 
I mean, that's the, well, I think they have to go hand in hand. Why? Because the kingdom will be advanced. Not because somebody's agenda or America will become amazing. It's that the kingdom of God will be advanced because God uses it all. Spiritual, emotional, relational, and political, and economical fields of life. So, when you think about our situation here in either America or any Western culture where we have kind of a democratic society where individuals have opportunity to influence the direction or the laws of a government, um, it's, it's easy to kind of pull away because it feels like the politics in America have been hijacked by extremists, really, on, on every side of the, of the aisle. And... Um, that's so distasteful and such a turnoff. No wonder people just walk away and go, you can have it, man. But at the same time, we have a unique situation. I, I just did a, just kind of a quick survey of governments around the world, and I, I came up with a short list. I, I think there are basically four kinds of government, just to give you some perspective. Okay, uh, there are primitive cultures. You know, our friends Gil and Gloria were ministering in Erie and Jaya. Uh, they're ruled by a chief or a witch doctor who rule using fear of the spirit world. That's their management style. Okay, that's their governing principle. And then there are monarchies and totalitarian governments, whether a king or a dictator. They have the backing of military force. We have several of those kind of countries around the world right now. Then there's a theocracy, uh, priests who rule by the fear of whatever deity they choose. And many Muslim nations use a version of God who's not the God of the Bible to just keep people in line. And then there's a unique system called democracy where we are ruled by the consent of us. And what's interesting is, as a Christian, you can kind of go, I was born here, I've had this all my life, it's never been any different, I don't really, I just take it for granted. And so when it comes to um, participating in the political atmosphere, we often think, eh, it's always been fine, it's always gonna be fine, I'm gonna go get my latte and hang out for a while. Because we've been born here and it seems so normal, but you have to recognize Democracy, uh, being ruled by the consent of the people is an absolutely um, huge responsibility for the individuals who are there. I've got another quote from this young student, David Clauston. He says, in an American context, there are significant words prefacing the Constitution. We, the people. You're not going to find that in any of those dictatorships or any of those witch doctor communities in tribal areas and primitive in the United States, ultimate national sovereignty is entrusted to the people. James Madison explained that the consent of the people is the pure original fountain of all legitimate authority. This reality makes politics unavoidable for American citizens who control their political future. And I think that's what, what I'm hearing the Lord say to me and to us today is that it's distasteful as the climate is right now, walking away is not the answer. Walking away is not the answer. There won't be a presidential election for about 18 years, I think. I don't know. It seems so far in the future. It's ridiculous that they're talking about it now. No, it's actually 18 months or so. But we need to at least be responsible for the things God has called us to do. We happen to live here. We happen to live in one of the few countries on the planet where consent of and by the people is the law of the land. 
And just because it's been easy because your ancestors and forefathers have taken care of everything so well for you in the past doesn't mean it's going to keep going that way. And if Christians check out, I, I don't know. The favor of God, I think, is going to vanish to some degree. And my friends and neighbors who are being told, yeah, safe injection site, go for it, buddy. Don't go to Teen Challenge. Go to the safe injection site. I'm sorry, that's a kingdom issue that I really care about. So I, I really want to just challenge you this morning. Um, wherever you're at, this is not a you know, Democrat or Republican topic. It's an involvement topic that's supposed to come with the territory of just being called a child of God. I'm a Christian, and I'm called to love my neighbor, pray for those in authority over me, and I'm called to be engaged in advancing the kingdom wherever I can in every sphere of life, spiritual, emotional, relational, economic, and political. In the next few weeks, I want to just make sure wherever you are and whatever you believe and whatever you can do to influence our country, that you're grounded in the word, that you're making your choices based on what God thinks. Not because of a party, not because of a personality, not because of a political expediency, but because this is the closest to God's word that I've seen on the ballot. I'm going to go with that. I also want to encourage you, avoid getting caught up in the Twitter wars. Avoid getting wrapped around the axle of some extremist. Avoid arguing on Facebook, never fruitful, but participate, participate. And if you ha can have a, a kind and collegial discussion with somebody that may not have made up their mind yet or that you perhaps disagree with, do that in such grace and with such respect and deference that truth can actually maybe seep into your mind or theirs. Because um, I think the Lord's called us to it. It's part of the package of saying, I'm saved, going to heaven, and while I'm here, I'm called to steward the grace of God in my life and the lives of those around me. Of course, none of this can be possible if you haven't been governed by Jesus first. You've got to give your life to him to have these convictions really seep deep into your heart. So if you haven't received Christ personally and said, Lord, be governor, be king, be boss, CEO, take over my life, then you're not going to receive his spirit of life and wisdom and revelation that you need to really stand your ground on these principles. So I want to encourage you this morning. You can have that happen anytime by asking Jesus into your heart. The second part might be if you've been away from the Lord, and uh, today's just a good day to recommit and just to take him seriously once again. He'll receive you and forgive you right now and begin again. So, Father, I thank you for your grace and for your word. And, Lord, I, I'm not thankful for conflict, but I am thankful for being stirred up. That when there are disagreements among us and when there are challenges before us, Lord God, one thing I do like is being stirred up by your Holy Spirit. I just pray that you'd stir us up individually, Lord God, so that we might know how you've called us to respond in the political arena as well as every other arena of our lives. And not to abdicate responsibility to someone else because, Lord, you've given us the greatest gift of all. We have, we have life. We have the wisdom of the Spirit. Help us to use it wisely. For those who have never received you this morning, Lord, I pray that you give them the courage to ask. Jesus, would you come and show me who you are?
open my eyes so I can see you. If you're really the living God, Lord, I want proof. Give them courage to ask that question. And for those who need to just recommit a fresh love for you, Lord, give them the courage to say, all right, Father, I'm home. Forgive me. I'm home. And we look forward to this day and the season of honoring those who've gone before us in our country and paid the greatest gift of all. They gave their lives so we could live in this land. We thank you for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you. See you next Sunday. Have a great weekend.